We're going to begin with an inconvenient truth. You know, there are some inconvenient truths. There are eternal truths in the scriptures that aren't very popular in today's Christian world. Did you know that? Here's the inconvenient truth that we're going to talk about today as setting up our series, The Productive and Effective Life. And it is simply this. God expects us to get the job done. It's not just that we're these pathetic people that God just loves, even though we're just super pathetic, then then we go to heaven. There's a job to do that he equips us to do, and he expects us to do it. When the nation of Israel was set free from their bondage to Egypt, and they were heading to the promised land, and the promised land was full of giants, and then they got scared, did God give them a hug? No, when they said, I know you've said that's our land and we're to go take it, but we're not going to because we're scared of the giants. What happened to them? They wandered in the desert for 40 years until all of those people had died and then the next generation went in. That's not a big hug. That's okay, if you're not going to do the job, I'll find somebody else who will. That's an inconvenient truth in today's Christianity. God expects us to get the job done. Now the good news is he equips us to get the job done, but that God has an expectation that we advance the kingdom of God, that we do evangelism and missions, and that we are effective personally in our own spheres. It's just part of the reality. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, we see over and over and over that Jesus expects us to get the job done. We've got the parable of the talents, the parable of the minas, the parable of the sower, even the 11th hour parable. There's the fig tree parable. And then, of course, there's teachings like the Great Commission, you know, going to go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. There are situations where, like, Jesus deals with the rich young ruler. It's about taking on the responsibility of serving in the kingdom of God, being a servant of God, not just a recipient of the forgiveness of God, but then a servant of God, an ambassador for Christ, to be a light in this world, to change this world. We've got all kinds of different scriptures I could read, but we're going to go to the gospel of John chapter 15 and read a section of that where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. If you've heard this story before in John chapter 15, Jesus likens himself to a vine and us as branches and God the Father as the husbandman or the gardener. Let's read this. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. I enjoy gardening, and so it's fun to see some of these examples that Jesus uses in order to help us see the kingdom of God, because we don't have an eternal perspective. We're here in this world, and so Jesus explains things in this world so that we can extrapolate into God's kingdom. So Jesus says, I'm the vine, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. What happens to branches that don't bear fruit? They get cut off. How does that sound? That doesn't sound good. You know, I'm not interested in arguing theology on this. Let's just avoid this. You know, let's not find out. Let's just walk in obedience to God. Let's just go ahead and bear some fruit. Why personally experience what it means to be cut off? Because it said, Jesus says, That the Father cuts off every branch in me, that's in Christ. The Father cuts off every branch in Christ that bears no fruit. That's a scary, scary sentence. 
while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. What does prune mean? It means you cut pieces off of it so that it will be more productive. Is that pleasant, do you think? But it's our best case scenario. We want pruning. Pruning is good. Pruning is the best one of these two options. You've got completely cut or some cut. Let's, let's go with pruning. So we want to experience being pruned. That is the, the process of being strengthened to walk with God more effectively. We want to be pruned. So let's read the next couple of verses. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So I believe this verse, Jesus is saying to his disciples, okay, we're talking about cutting off. That's scary stuff. Just understand, you've been forgiven and set free. You're already clean. Don't get all nervous on me here. Verse four, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So here we see that Jesus is saying we need to stay connected with him. We need to stay connected with the power of God by staying connected to Jesus. And then the fruit will come. In my early years as a Christian, I made the mistake of, well, Lord, you died for me. I'm going to go do some stuff for you. I walked out on my own. Go serve the Lord. How's that work? It's a disaster. We need to stay inside of the will, the plan, and the power of God. And then the fruit happens. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. So we abide in the vine. We stay connected with Jesus. And then the fruit in our lives will happen. So We can't bear fruit unless we remain in the vine. And if we're sucking energy from the vine and not bearing fruit, that's going to hurt the fruit-bearing branches. So snip. There goes that. Jesus expects us to make a difference, to advance the kingdom of God, to be a light shining in the darkness. Jesus expects us to get the job done. I want to tell a little bit of the story I have the privilege of participating in different Assemblies of God organizational things. And a couple months ago, I was able to be in a small group of people, about 40 people, that got to hear the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God of Tanzania, Brother Barnabas, speak. And he is an amazing, amazing human being. And it was fun to just be there and listen to him talk. And he felt that God was telling him that they need to plant 10,000 churches in Tanzania in the next 10 years. And they hadn't planted any churches. They'd just let the missionaries do the work. And he then proceeded to explain how this has been going. He's nine years in. They're nine years in, and they've already planted about, they're over 7,000 churches planted already. For each one of those churches, they've got an average of 180 new baptized believers per church. So these aren't churches of four. These are churches where God is moving and God is just doing incredible things. And one of the things that that Brother Barnabas talked about was that the Christians in Tanzania needed to repent of an egregious sin. He said the sin that they needed to repent of was complacency. They needed to repent of not planting churches. They needed to repent of not doing evangelism. They needed to repent of not aggressively 
fighting to advance the kingdom of God. And so he called his nation to repentance. They repented, and then they all got on board. I mean, like, he prayed for 45 days to come up with the plan, you know, and so he had a, the, the strategic plan, the strategic implementation plan. It was all just fantastic stuff and, you know, obvious and brilliant at the same time. That's how the things of God are. They're obvious and brilliant. And they're having fantastic success with that because as a nation, they repented from complacency in advancing the gospel. And they're seeing thousands of churches and they revamped the whole how, how you get to be a pastor and that sort of thing so that they could have all these new pastors because they've got all these new churches and it's, it's only going to work that way. But they are aggressively going forward. And one of the great things about the Assemblies of God is the missions sending of the Assemblies of God in the United States is just fantastic. 30 years ago, there were missionaries all over the world with the Assemblies of God, but none of those countries were sending missionaries anywhere. The only Assemblies of God denomination that was sending missionaries was the United States. Now, 100 other Assembly of God national organizations are sending missionaries to other countries. The 100th was Jamaica. So Jamaica sent a missionary to Grand Cayman. Very exciting stuff. And so all of these recipients of missions are now sending missionaries. They're realizing it's not just about receiving. It's also about giving the gospel. Freely you have received, freely give. And so there is a swell across the world of evangelism and advancing the gospel. And we need to get on board with that in the United States. We need to get on board with that right here in our communities, in our workplaces, our schools. We need to get on board with bringing the light of Christ to this world. Again, God expects us to get the job done. People around the world are doing the job. In the United States, we're closing more churches than we're opening. This is a disaster. Shall we, instead of being complacent, instead of falling down and failing, how about... We become productive and effective. Amen? So, see how I set this all up? The the productive and effective life isn't so I can have things for me. It's so that we can answer the call. Because if you're just beat down and weak and sick and you've got no resources, you can't help. You need help. We need to be strong so that we can rise up and answer the call. So we need to find out how to become productive and effective in our service in the kingdom of God. Now, the good news is, is that there is a wonderful eight-step approach to success in this area outlined in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, personally, I like clear expectations and then clear directions on how to meet those expectations right? I want to know what's expected of me and how I can accomplish that. Now, scripturally, we are expected to get the job done. We are expected to bring the gospel to the world. We're expected to be a light in the darkness. We're expected to do that. And here in 2 Peter chapter 1, we have eight steps that if we do these, the promise is that we will be productive and effective. Now, 
I like 2 Peter chapter 1 because it speaks in principles rather than in specific things. You know, it doesn't say, well, wear blue on Tuesday. You know, there aren't specific details. These are generalities that then we need to apply in our context individually. I prefer the, the principles behind the action because then you can apply that in any different context. And that's what we see here in 2 Peter chapter 1. So throughout this series, we'll be trying to delineate what those principles are and then also see various ways that we can apply those in our specific context. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and let's read through uh, verse 1 through 11 and look at the eight steps that we have here. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. This is from Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. So who is this written to? Different books of the Bible. It might be a letter written to a particular church. There might be specific things going on that are being dealt with. This is written to whoever has received Christ as Savior, who has put their faith in the Lord. So this is to the church to everyone, to us today. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So here, Ron mentioned this earlier, that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. You may be thinking we don't have what we need, but let me tell you, the Scripture says we already have everything that we need. How is that possible? Do you feel like you've got everything you need for life and godliness? Here's what you have. You have access to the life-changing power of God. You have access to the wisdom of God. You have access to the vine. We can abide in, attach to the vine. We as branches attach to Christ and then His power, the Holy Spirit, the power of God flows through us and bears fruit for the kingdom of God. We have everything we need because we can't do it, but God can. I remember being called to ministry years ago, and I was just itching, you know, and like waiting for years for my opportunity and fighting through all kinds of barriers and personal barriers and other barriers. And finally, it got to be the time where it was only maybe a couple months away, and I'm going to be launching out. And I had this wave of panic in the middle of church happen to me of, I can't do this. And then a wave of peace went over me. I can't do this. If I can't do this, God must have another plan other than relying on me. God must have a different system than me and my own strength going out and getting the job done. It's got to be me connecting with Christ and then the power of God flowing through and the fruit coming. You've been given everything you need because you have access to the power of God. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. By His glory and goodness, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So we participate in the divine nature. We connect with the ways of God and that frees us from the corruption of the world. Verse 5. 
For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. Step one, faith. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. For this reason, make every effort. So, is there anything that we have to do with this? Are we just, well, if God wants to do something in me, he'll do it, you know, whatever. No, we make every effort. We are the ones that seek this out. We are the ones that grab hold of the things of God. Make every effort to add to your faith. So it starts with faith. Add to your faith goodness. Next week, we'll talk about goodness. This does not mean what you think it means. Men, you have to be here next week. The word literally translated is manliness. But add to your faith goodness. Talk about that next week. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. So there's our eight steps. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this means that we will be productive and effective if we can put these things into our lives and have them be increasing, in increasing measure. So we want to add these eight things and we want them to continue to increase over time. That will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive. That means that we'll bear fruit for the kingdom of God and that we won't get cut off and we'll we'll get pruned so it will be more effective and more productive. But isn't that important to learn how to be effective and productive in the kingdom of God? Eight steps, eight qualities that we have a biblical promise that if we put these things into our life, that we will be productive and effective for the kingdom, will bear fruit for the kingdom of God. This is something I want to grab hold of. Verse 9, the other side of the coin. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Again, another inconvenient truth is there are negative statements in the scriptures. You only see the happy ones, like on the calendar or on the coffee cup, but the other ones are just as true. So, nearsighted and blind, what does that mean? So it isn't like we can be effective and productive or neutral. Jesus said, you're for me or you're against me. There aren't three groups. There aren't the for, the neutral, and the against. There's the for and the against. To not be for Christ is to be against. Nearsighted and blind. Nearsighted means... That you can see things near, but you can't see things far. You can only see things close up. And this is describing a life that's being lived, stuck in its own little problems, its own little world, only seeing its own little sphere, but not having the greater perspective of seeing everything else. Have you ever been stuck in your little list of problems? And your world is just about you and your list of problems. That's nearsighted. You're only seeing your world. What we are called to is to have a broader vision and to be part of something bigger than ourselves, be part of the global plan of God, the global body of Christ. We get to be part of something that's eternal and magnificent and wonderful, not just our little petty lives, not just our little wonderful lives, (laughs) but we get to be part of all of these glorious things. Don't be nearsighted and blind. And instead of being motivated to bring help to the hurting, instead of being motivated to bring salvation to the lost, instead of being motivated to bring light into the darkness, we're just all concerned about our own little issues. Nearsighted and blind. No, let's rise up and let's want to make a difference. 
Let's see the need and grab hold of the true purpose in living this life in the first place because nothing else will compare. And he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Again, freely you have received, freely give. Jesus sent out his disciples and he said, freely you have received, freely give. Let's freely receive the forgiveness of God. And let's share that forgiveness with other people. Let's freely receive all kinds of wonderful things from God. And let's freely share those things with other people. Don't just get forgiven and then want to hold that in a bottle yourself. Pour it out and share the goodness of God. Verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. How does never fall sound? If you do these things, you will never fall. Now, I don't think this means that we'll never make a mistake ever again. I think this means that we're, we're in. We're solid. We're good. We won't disconnect from Christ. We won't get cut off. We will never fall. Our calling and election will be sure. That's a good place to be. We don't have to be worried. You're, you're clean. You know, the word has been spoken over you. You're already clean. We can be in that place of security. Never fall. Verse 11, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound good? So we must make every effort to add these eight things. If we add these eight things, we get to participate in these fantastic promises like that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. We can participate in the divine nature. We can be productive and effective, that we will never fall and that we will receive a rich welcome into God's eternal kingdom. But we must make every effort to be people of faith and then to add things to our faith. So it starts with faith, but it doesn't finish with faith. It begins with faith. Once you confess faith in Christ, you start, you begin. It's not the end. It's the beginning. So we must make sure that we have Faith in God, because that's where it starts. It's the thing that gets added to. So what is faith? Sometimes it seems like to me that faith is one of those things that we've talked about so many times and that it's lost its meaning. You know what I mean? Like people can say the Lord's Prayer, wonderful, glorious, beautiful, profound prayer. They can be praying the Lord's Prayer and thinking about something else at the same time. Things can lose their meaning with repetition. And so we don't want to lose the meaning of what it means to be a person of faith, to have faith in God. So let's look at a couple of scriptures, Hebrews 11.1 1, and then Hebrews 11.6. And then I'll tell a couple stories to try to grab hold of what faith is. Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The substance of things unseen. Faith is trusting God that the things that we don't see yet will come to pass. That his promises are something that we can grab hold of. So Hebrews 11.1 1 is one of the uh, famous faith verses. Hebrews 11.6 I like a lot as well. It's not as often quoted, but I like Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you're going to please God without faith. No, you've got to trust him. You know, have you ever had somebody not trust you? Were you pleased with them? <laughs> no. When we trust him, it pleases God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And. So faith in God is not believing that he exists. It includes believing that he exists. 
but it also includes that he is good. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That walking in the ways of God, learning the ways of God, applying the ways of God to our life is worth it. That it isn't, yeah, heaven's worth it, but serving God now is not worth it. Instead, faith in God is, yes, every day walking with God is worth it. I would rather be in the middle of my calling, in the middle of my purpose, in the middle of making a difference in this world, and then go receive a rich welcome, than have a more comfortable existence here. It's worth it. Have you ever fought for something and it was superficially unpleasant, but well worth it? I've not gone through childbirth, but from what I understand, it's quite unpleasant until the baby's born, and then it's well worth it. And I I haven't heard a mom say, yeah, the kid's nice, but I totally wouldn't do that again. I mean, they, that labor was a bear. Yeah, they don't say that. It was worth it. And serving God in this life, even when there's challenges, is worth it. So what is faith? It's when you believe that God exists, that he's good, that he knows best, that you can trust him, that his ways are the right ways, and that he will carry us through this. That's faith. Let me tell a couple of stories. The first one is the coach example, and the second one is the wheelbarrow story. So the coach example. So do basketball teams wonder whether or not their coach exists? No, they know their coach exists. Do they necessarily believe in their coach? They may or may not believe in their coach. If they think their coach is a fool, they think their coach exists, but that their coach is a bad coach. But if they think their coach is a great coach, they believe in their coach. And how do you find out? Well, here's the scenario. Three seconds left, you're down by one and inbounding the ball. Coach calls the team over and says, hey, I've been waiting for this moment all season. I've got a play designed specifically for you guys, and we are going to win this game. So there's the timeout, he writes out the play, and the players look at the play and are like, ah, not so sure about that one. What do the players do if they believe in their coach? Say, well, he's got, he's got to know something I don't know. Let's, let's run the play. They run the play. What do the players do if they don't believe in their coach? Look, man, just pass me the ball. I'll take care of it. They just do it their own way. They can trust their coach if they believe in their coach. And they'll run the play even if they don't understand it. Now, what if we were to read the Ten Commandments? We could find out if we believe in the ways of God or not. If we read the play and we're like, don't covet. (laughs) That's ridiculous. Do we believe in the Word of God? No. If we don't covet, wow, you must know something I don't know. Better get on that. Better start working on my heart here. If we believe in our God and his word, then we run the play even if we don't understand it because we trust Almighty God. Next example is the wheelbarrow story based on a true story. Back in the day, there was a guy that used to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. He would go from one side to the other. It's a long ways. 
the tightrope is down in the mist, you know, like it's, it's like got moisture on it and that sort of thing. And he would walk across and there was a viewing platform that people could watch him walk across Niagara Falls. And so we'll have Bob, our fictional vacationer, goes to Niagara Falls and he sees the, the viewing platform in 25 cents. So he throws his quarter in, he goes up on the viewing platform. He's like, what's this all about? And sure enough, here this guy shows up. He starts off across Niagara Falls on the tightrope. And our vacationer, Bob, is like, I paid 25 cents to watch a guy with a death wish. This is a disaster. But he makes it all the way to the other side. And the crowd's like, wow. And so he gets to the other side, and he waves to the crowd, and, and he starts walking backwards across Niagara Falls. And our vacationer, Bob, is like, oh, no, he sucked me in, and now he's going to kill himself walking backwards across Niagara Falls. But he makes it the whole way. And then he rolls the front of a wheelbarrow onto the uh, tightrope. And he starts across. And our vacationer Bob is like, oh no! But he makes it all the way across. He waves to the crowd. And then he starts backwards. And he's walking backwards with the wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. He's like, what is he doing? But he makes it all the way. And then shows over. And now it's uh, the, the tightrope walker guy's got his book signing. So you can go buy a book. He'll sign it for you and that sort of thing. So Bob is like, I got to go see this guy. And so he, he goes up to the book signing. And he's like, hey, man, I want to get one of your books. And uh, they're having a little conversation. The tightrope walker says to Bob, he says, okay, okay so uh, do you think I could uh, walk across that tightrope again? Bob's like, yeah. I mean, you, you got a book about it. You do this every day. Like, you're, you, you didn't even waver. You got there and back. Are you sure that I can make it across the tightrope? It's like, well, yeah, I'm sure you can. He says, do you think I could do that wheelbarrow trick again? Like, well, yeah, I saw you do it with my own eyes. You do, you do it all the time. He says, okay, if you believe I can do it, get in the wheelbarrow and let's go. It's one thing when you have no stake in it to make a prediction. It's another thing when you are putting everything of who you are onto it. If we are going to walk by faith, we trust God with something very, very precious. And that is us. We climb in the wheelbarrow. We trust him not just with this life, not just with our hearts and our minds and our emotions, but we trust him with our soul. We trust him with our spirit. We trust him for everlasting life. We trust him to bring us to the other side in safety. When you get in the wheelbarrow, don't jump around a whole lot. Don't second guess a whole lot. Don't go grabbing for the tightrope. Trust the guy that can roll it across. We must trust God. We must be people of faith who believe in God, who trust God, who know his ways are right. Know that if we grab hold of God's good things, that that he'll reward those who earnestly seek him. And if we want to be effective and productive in our service to God, that we can add to our faith many more things and be people who succeed at getting the job done that God has called us to do. Our last point, faith grows. It's not just a yes or no thing. Faith is something that grows over time. That as we step out, we start to trust God. We start to see that His Word is powerful. We start to understand that when we we walk by faith and we actually are hitting the nail on the head that God's power comes. There was a man in New Testament times that came to the disciples of Jesus with his son who was hurting and had a demon that was messing with them and trying to kill him. And there was all this darkness over this kid. And the father brought the kid to the disciples to get the demon out. And they couldn't do it. 
And then Jesus shows up. He was somewhere else, and he's like, what's going on? And they explain the situation, and he's a little bit flabbergasted, and is like, come on, guys. And the dad says to Jesus, hey, man, if you can help me, you got to help me if you can. Jesus says, if I can. Like, I can. Will you trust me? And this is what that man said, Mark 9, 24. Mark 9, 24 says, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Does that make sense? Can you believe and not believe at the same time? Many of us are in that spot right now. Yes, I believe, but I'm unsure. Yes, I believe, I think. (laughs) Yes, Lord, I want to believe, but I'm not exactly sure how. I did these things that didn't work how I thought. My faith is a little shaken. I do believe, help my unbelief. If you're someone who needs to make a first-time profession, yes, I believe in you. Almighty God, I believe you're real. I believe you're good. And I want to pledge my life to serve you. And I I thank you for forgiving my sins. If that's you, I want you to pray that to God. To pledge, yes, I have faith in you. What we receive then is we receive forgiveness of sins. And we receive a future of walking with God. Both in this life and forevermore. If you're someone who has started the process, but finds yourself in that place of, I do believe, help my unbelief. Let's do the smart thing like this man did. He said to Jesus, help me. He did the smart thing. He went to the Lord. He said, I do believe. He wouldn't be there in the first place if he didn't believe to some extent, but he also had doubts. He also had fears. And so he said, help me, help me overcome my unbelief. Let's ask God to help us to give us wisdom, to show his power and give us something to grab hold of. Let's ask God to help us in our unbelief.